0: Amen. And uh, you see my fake parent parental advisory here. Uh, due to the sensitive nature of the topic today, we are encouraging our kids to go ahead and head to childcare. So, uh, Miss Deanna's in the back waving her hand, um, and she's going to bring the kids over. Uh, thank you, Deanna, for organizing that today for us. If you look around in our culture today, uh, you very quickly get the sense that the traditional Christian view of sex, marriage, and gender is outdated, old-fashioned, and embarrassing in our world today. Worse than that, though, it's increasingly being seen as harmful and hurtful to people. And I mentioned that at the start because it's important for us, as we have this conversation today, to remember that we're not talking simply about issues, We're talking about people uh, with their own stories, with people with uh, rejection in their past and deep pain and struggle. And so uh, we want to have this conversation well. We want to be clear about what the Bible teaches. And we also want to have this conversation sensitively, uh, knowing that, again, at the end of the day, we're not talking about issues today. We're not talking about ideas. We're talking about people and their lives and how they live their lives And so, uh, just some questions as we get started. Maybe you've been asked these questions by people. If two people love each other, why shouldn't they be allowed to be together? Isn't it unloving to say that people should not act on their desires? Or someone might ask, with so much evil in the world today, is it really worth spending time and attention on what happens between the sheets at home? Or what people choose to do between their legs? Like, aren't there bigger things to focus on? So that's what we're gonna be talking about. Nice, light topic for today. Uh, No, I I know this is a big deal and it is everywhere in our culture. So quick review, uh, because this is gonna set the stage for how we're going to be talking about what we're talking about today. Paul writes this in Second Corinthians chapter 10. He says, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive, To obey Christ. So, this should be review if you've been here uh, for the rest of this series. Uh, This has kind of been our key verse for this entire series. We've been looking at some of these strongholds, some of these conceptions of reality, these ways of viewing the world that at the end of the day don't line up with the biblical view. And we've been doing our best to recognize them, to understand them, uh, to be equipped to respond to them. And it's all uh, actually with the goal of love. We want to better understand our friends and neighbors and relatives who hold some of these views. We want to understand how they see the world. Love begins with understanding. Uh, secondly, we want to be equipped to recognize and respond to these false conceptions about reality. And then finally, last week, we looked at that key verse from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, like, why are you trying to take the splinter out of someone else's eye when you've got a two by four in your own? And Jesus says, hypocrite, first." Take the beam out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. And so we're also trying to do that with with every one of these kind of big views of the world or perspectives on the world and how it works. We're trying to say, okay, let's hold the mirror up to ourselves and let's say, is there some of this that I have absorbed through my life? And let's root that out of ourselves and recognize it and go back to Scripture and say, God, we want to view the world the way you want us to view the world. And so today we're looking at, uh, again, this is just my title for this. This probably won't make sense to other people. But I'm calling this the view of sexualism. That human flourishing is only possible if people are free to embrace whatever sexual identity they have or desires that they have. Human flourishing is only possible with sexual freedom. And again, with every week of these series, we've been looking at how people answer three big questions. Uh, where did we come from? What's wrong with the world? And how do we fix it? And same thing with this week. Uh, where did we come from? Usually people who hold this view, um, if you push them on it, they, they would have an evolution-based view of where we all come from. Um, we're just We're just evolved mammals. Um, Healthy human development depends on the free functioning of reproductive glands. Why would you deny the desires that evolution has given you? Does that make sense? I remember a song I heard growing up. Maybe you heard it too. You and me, baby, we ate nothing but mammals. Yes. Do you know what comes next? Yes. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Those are the lyrics, right? That's this view in a nutshell, right? You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals, so why deny those instincts? Let's just do whatever we desire sexually, okay? Uh, what's wrong with the world? Anything that would limit that expression, that freedom of expression, uh, especially Christian morality. And then how do we fix it? We need to work for increasing sexual freedom in society and work against any groups or people who would be against that goal, okay? Work for sexual freedom and work against any groups who are not for that amount of sexual freedom. So are you beginning to see this? Uh, and let me just say right now that uh, middle school, high school students, I wanna encourage you to not uh, just let your mind drift during the message today. Um, this is really applicable for you and the world you're living in. Uh, when it comes to some of these worldviews, I keep going back to that, that silly joke where the old fish, the old whitest fish swims past a couple of young fish, and he's like, hey boys, how's the water today? And he swims on, and the young fish look at each other like, what is water? And the whole point is, right, we're swimming in these cultural waters every day. We're immersed in these views of the world. And if you're immersed in something, it just seems like common sense. That's the way everyone views the world. It's obvious, it's clear but really you're immersed in these waters. And so I'm hoping students um, and all of us, but that you will come to recognize through what we're talking about today, some of those cultural waters that you're swimming in and immersed in. So this is the basic view. Uh, One of the things I I wanna just consider for a moment is why did this view of the world become so powerful and so popular? First, a quote before we look at this. Uh, This is kind of an articulation of the heart behind this view. Margaret Sanger said, Through sex, mankind will attain the great spiritual illumination which will transform the world and light up the only path to an earthly paradise. If you don't think that there's a broad view about where salvation is found behind this view of the world, think again. At root in some of these ideas that we've absorbed is this is how we get to paradise, just set people free to do whatever they want sexually, and then we will attain paradise. That's what activist Margaret Sanger was saying. So why is this view so powerful and why is it so popular? As I consider that, I think there's a f- couple different roots, at least in our culture for this. Um, I think there's kind of a philosophical or an ideological root in uh, Sigmund Freud and his psychoanalysis. Now, there are various ideas out there for, like, why we have the the psychological issues we do and how to treat them. But Freud became very well known with his ideas that a lot of the problems people face as adults are rooted in sexual repression as children. That that's where a lot of the ills of society come from. And so if you want to kind of an analogy to think through these points of, why this view is so popular and uh, powerful today, you could think of it like this, like Sigmund Freud with his views on psychoanalysis was almost like laying a bunch of pieces of wood together and piling them up. And then the 1960s happened and the free love movement. And that was like this spark was like, now we've got a bonfire, okay? And then along came the internet and that's like pouring gasoline on this fire, okay? So these are three big um, causes or catalysts for this view and its popularity in our Western culture today. Psychoanalysis, the 1960s and free love movement kind of brought in this idea and just put it out there for everyone. And then there you have this technological catalyst, the internet and the availability of something. I don't know. Sometimes I write my notes and I don't know what I was noting. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but we all know the internet uh, made everything more widely available. Everything from accessibility of pornography to people sharing their stories and their viewpoints on these questions um, to demonstrating protests, right? It, it just spread and put a, put a bonfire on um, this entire movement, I believe. Now, there's one more reason. Um, there's actually a theological basis that when people consistently resist God's will and work, God gives them over to their desires. In fact, our key text is gonna be exploring that truth. Uh, If you have your Bible today, you wanna follow on in a a couple minutes, we're gonna be in Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. And this is the dynamic that Romans one lays out. Um, But before we get there, uh, I just wanna do some broad level kind of uh, (laughs) addressing some questions. I hesitated to even do this in this message because any one of these topics is an entire sermon in and of itself. And so it's really ridiculous to try and spend, you know, three minutes on each of these for a couple minutes, Uh, but that's what we're gonna do because, and here's why, because even though these are all huge topics and ideas in our culture and world today that we need to understand and be equipped to respond to, I think all of them at the end of the day are rooted in this umbrella idea that human flourishing is only possible with sexual freedom. And these are just kind of symptoms of that idea or how it's worked out in a practical way over time. And so uh, one of the ways this works out over time is with uh, homosexuality. Familiar with the acronym LGBTQIA, is that how it goes now? Uh, This is the L and the G and the B part of that. Gay, lesbian, bisexual. Uh, These are all statements, just to clarify, these are all statements about sexual attraction. People get confused in this conversation about what we're even talking about. I just want to define some terms, right? If you identify as lesbian, you're saying, I am a woman who's attracted to women sexually. If you say, I'm gay, you're saying, I am a man who's attracted sexually to men. If you say, I'm bisexual, saying, I'm a man or a woman who's attracted to both sexes. But all of these are views about who you find sexually attractive, who you experience attraction towards. And if you say you're straight, that means you experience heterosexual attraction. I'm a man attracted to women. I'm a, w- a woman who's attracted to men. Now, Christians historically um, have said this is sin. We're not supposed to act on same-sex desires. Let me talk more about that in a moment. But before I even talk about the conclusion, let's talk about why Christians say what they do. Because a lot of times people mischaracterize Christianity and say, "You guys are just against sex, right? You Christians are just anti-sex." And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, the Bible is very pro-sex. It teaches that sex was God's idea and His creation. He thought it up. And in the beginning, it was good. God looked at Adam and Eve as sexual beings and said, good, and even very good, okay? So sex is not bad, sex is good. But simultaneously, Christians have also said that sex is powerful, and therefore we need to be cautious and careful with the way it's expressed and the guidelines and the boundaries around it. I was trying to think of a way to communicate this idea, Um, and bear with me, but I think a good analogy would be like power tools versus traditional tools. If you've ever built something and had to saw things by hand, or uh, nail with a hammer as framing a building, and then if you've ever also done that with a miter saw, and with an air compressor, and a frame nailer. Okay, am I talking to anyone else here, right? You have to, okay, I think you have to hit your finger at least once to understand and deeply appreciate the difference between just walking up, picking up that frame nail, and then Wow, (laughs) (laughs) nail like, it's like, what? this is amazing. Um, But with power tools, right, you have to be careful. There's guidelines in place, right? If you ever took wood shop as a high school student, right, there's all kinds of instructions about like, cut like this, do not ever cut like this. Keep your fingers away from the blade, right? You're using a power frame nailer, right? It's like, you be careful with that thing. Be careful where you point it. Don't shoot the board on top of your body parts, right? There's all these, um, some of them are common sense guidelines. And others are things you might not have thought of. But they're there, why? Because frame nailers are evil. No, right? Because they're powerful. They're so powerful that they can cause great damage if they're misused. This is what Christians have always upheld about sex. It's so good, and it's so powerful. And so if it gets misused, it has great capacity for great harm to you. That's why we are against certain um, sexual acts or acting on certain sexual desires. Not because we're anti-sex, we are pro-sex, but we're pro-sex the way God designed it to work. So can you be a gay Christian, or a lesbian Christian, or a bisexual Christian? That's where things get annoyingly complicated. Because if you take the word gay and you just say, this is who I am attracted to, that doesn't actually say what you do with those feelings of attraction at the end of the day. And so we need to um, probably ask more questions before we just say yes or no to questions like this. Because... I've met people and I've read about Christians who say I've prayed to God about the same-sex desires that I experience and feel and he hasn't made them go away. I experience same-sex attraction. So I'm gay. And I'm trying to follow Jesus and I feel like the Bible teaches that that means I should just be celibate and not act on those desires and I'm doing my best to do that. They would say I'm a gay Christian. I experience this attraction but I do my best not to act on those feelings of attraction. See why this is a little bit complicated? Someone could say that. Someone else could say, I'm a gay Christian. They mean, I think it's totally fine for men to marry men and women to marry women and be in a lifelong covenant relationship. Um, I don't stand there because of what the Bible teaches about sex and good sex that's between one man and one woman for life. Uh, That was God's good plan and design for it. For we're not against this because we're anti-sex. We are pro-good sex. Let's talk about trans identity for a minute. Um, these are just a, a number of terms you may have heard and not quite known what they meant. Uh, the word dysphoria really means dissatisfaction or a deep disconnection. So people differentiate between your biological sex, the body parts you are born with, versus your sense of identity, your sense of self. And so someone who experiences gender dysphoria, what they mean when they say that is that they experience deep disconnection between their biological sex and their gender identity, how they feel, um, the kind of person that they feel that they are. To be cisgender or just, usually just said cis, uh, that means you experience connection between your biological sex and your gender identity, right? So um, I don't personally experience gender dysphoria. So someone would call me a cis male, okay? Um, And then transition is the process of changing your biological sex in various ways, some of them medically, some of them socially, but trying to change your biological sex to align with how you feel your gender identity. I think important for both of these discussions is not what, just simply what Jesus taught on marriage, but why he said what he said and how he thought of uh, the Old Testament teaching in general. So this is from Matthew chapter 19. Um, some Pharisees approached Jesus to try to test him. This happens all the time in the Gospels. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Right. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male And female. And he also said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, pause for a second. This is important to see what Jesus does with this information because what you have in bold is what Genesis 1 says, okay? And Genesis 2 says about. God making them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. So those are quotes from Genesis 1 that Jesus gives. But then pay attention to what he does with that idea. Jesus says, So because of how God created things, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What Jesus brings together is Creation and design and ethics, right and wrong, and how you should live. God made it this way, and therefore we should live this way. That's what he's bringing together in these verses. God made us male and female, and also God made it where uh, the covenant of marriage should be between a man and one woman for life. And so Jesus says, therefore you should live that way. In this case, he's, the direct application is you shouldn't get divorced for any and every reason, right? That, that goes against how God designed marriage to work. All right, uh, that was a whirlwind tour on some really, really big questions and topics. And after we look at this passage, you're gonna see that there's an application for this whether you experience same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction. And whether you experience gender dysphoria or whether you've never experienced gender dysphoria, there's an application for all of us because all of us have absorbed this kind of view of the world through our culture. And to get at that, uh, this is our key text for today, Romans chapter one. Let's look at what Paul teaches about really all of us and our story. Here's what Paul writes. He says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When I looked at this passage again this week, I was like, wow, there's a sermon right there by itself. Because a lot of times people are like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense to me or that's not logical. Or if you think about it in a clear way, but what Paul is saying is that through our behavior, through our actions, when they don't line up with God's ways, it actually messes with our thinking. By our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We don't view the world the way we should, and we don't live the way we should. And then Paul says, like, everyone kind of has a sense that there is a God because what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, his divine nature. They have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude instead their thinking, again, see the connection between thinking and behavior? Their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So Paul is kind of laying out this progression, right? It starts with, denying what you know about God and what he wants, instead of doing what you want. And then now what is he saying? What is he describing? You guys know, Go to church. Idolatry, right? So first progression, you disobey God's will and his ways and what you know in your heart is right. Your hearts are darkened, your senses are darkened, you don't see the world the right way. And then what happens next inevitably is idolatry. Now he's talking about, First century idolatry, where you would actually make images and worship them. That's not how our idolatry works very often. (laughs) Most of the time, we just elevate other things in our life to first place in our lives. And Paul is saying this is the general tendency over and over again. Idolatry. You deny God's ways, and because you know you're not living the way he wants you to, you choose to worship something else, someone else in his place and that's what's fascinating is he says, here's what happens right after that, the natural progression that people go through. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. It says, it starts with not obeying God, progresses to idolatry, worshiping something other than God. And then he says, inevitably, that leads to sexual immorality, handling sex in a way that God doesn't want you to. And what's fascinating to me, if you go back historically, you see this over and over in all kinds of cultures. It's crazy to me how often different religious practices became um, enmeshed with different sexual practices. If you go back to the, uh, you know, Canaanite religions, you see that their religions were not just about worshiping idols. There was a lot of sex going on too. There were temple prostitutes that you could go to to worship. Right. Isn't that interesting? That this worshiping something other than God almost always leads. The next step is towards sexual immorality. You also have expressed here this idea that, that God eventually people gives people over to their desires. Um, remember one of our kids. You know, when you have young children and you try and tell them not to do something and you could tell they really want to. One of our kids was at that phase of childhood where they're just putting everything in their mouth and they were playing in the sandbox. They're like, don't put sand in your mouth. And they pick up sand. And you see it coming. You're like, no, 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 no. Don't put sand in your mouth. <laughs> no, 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 no. And they, uh, this child was even like getting mad at Janelle and I. right? like, ah! Oh, like, I want, you know, they weren't even saying this, but you could tell, like, I'm going to do this, you know. And I, I actually remember uh, after telling Ida probably 10 times, don't put sand in your mouth, don't put sand in your mouth, finally Janelle and I looked at you like, all right, you really want to? And the kid's like, oh, right," And it's like, at, at some point, God, in his wisdom, is like, don't, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And we humans are like, I want to, I want to, I want to. No, no, no. And eventually God gets the point where he says, okay, I'll let you. It's not gonna go well, but I'll let you. When it says God delivered them over or gave them over, your translation might say, that's the idea. That eventually God says, that's what you really want. You're not gonna follow my ways. I'll let you have your way. It's not gonna go well though. You see this again, for, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. To be clear, this is not... um, that last verse, uh, in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Paul's not talking about some kind of disease or AIDS. I heard that when I was younger. Um, Scripture, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's just saying, when you go against God's ways, it's going to be hurtful to you ultimately. And you will receive in yourself the due penalty of going against God's ways. And what's interesting is, uh, I've done a lot of reading and studying about all these issues to try and understand it and teach it well. And there's... Um, some Christians that are very pro-homosexuality. And they, and they would say, you know, in the first century, um, the only form of homosexuality was was abusive homosexuality. And so when the New Testament condemns it, it's, con- it's condemning abusive relationships. It's not con- condemning same-sex relationships um, altogether. The problem is there's no hint whatsoever of that in these verses, right? There's no association with what's happening here and abuse. It's just saying that they're trading the way God designed sexual relations to work for something else, and it doesn't work. It's a symptom of idolatry. And so, because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind, so, that they, do not, so they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness, They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanders, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And if you know what Paul is doing in the book of Romans, this is fascinating because he's trying to get the Jewish people in Rome to be like, yeah, those people are so bad. Look at them. Look at all these things they do wrong. They're awful. And Paul says... Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, every one of you who judges or condemns them is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. See, Paul lists all this stuff. says, everyone's gone astray. Here's are the symptoms of it. And then he turns around and is like, hey, you Jews, that's, this is about you too. You too have gone away against God's ways and his will. And I think this is so important for us to get because unfortunately, historically, in the Christian community, there's been terrible um, and senseless uh, demeaning of people who experience same-sex attraction where they've gotten the message that somehow they're worse people or the worst kinds of sinners or disgusting for the, the attractions they experience. And if you've ever felt any of that or had any of that, or uh, if a teacher taught you that that was true, just listen to Paul's words. We have no excuse. Our reaction towards people who experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria and don't know what to do with it should, should be this. He or she is a sinner like me. And to have any other attitude, like a superior attitude or a morally superior attitude would be like this, it would be like people in the hospital, a group of people in the hospital with broken arms being like, at least we're not like those disgusting people over there with broken legs, <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. We compare sins and feel morally superior or like, "All oh, those people are so bad. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. What Paul makes clear here in Romans 1 to 2 is that this is not an us versus them conversation. It's an all of us versus God conversation. That all of us are sinners in need of God's grace. And maybe your particular sin isn't related to same-sex attraction. But guess what? You can be a heterosexual and sin sexually in a lot of different ways. And I love this last verse, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Let us hear that today. God's kindness is intended to lead all of us to repentance. It's just kind of summary of what we just saw. Our minds and hearts are connected, that wrong living leads to confused thinking. Idolatry, putting anything else other than God in first place in our lives, for some reason, almost always leads to sexually se- sexual sin. And then finally, what is the answer? Um, God's grace. God's grace for us through Jesus. And so like every week, I'm going to give you some questions to ask a friend or neighbor. Now, I'm going to be honest. These questions are a little softer And I tried to phrase them in more sensitive ways on purpose because, again, this is a sensitive topic. And as we seek to be there for our friends and neighbors, again, the most important thing about someone is not the particular sexual sin or the sexual struggles that they experience. The most important thing about any person is where they are with Jesus. And so let's put our focus there. But as we do that, Here are some questions that if you have a good relationship with someone, would be good to talk to them about. If they have this worldview of sexualism that says, the only way people can be healthy and whole is if they are free to act on whatever sexual desires they have, if they have kind of that worldview, here are some questions to ask them. When it comes to encouraging sexual freedom, is there a line? Is there a line? Should we encourage all forms of sexual freedom End of story or are there some sexual freedoms we should not encourage? And who gets to say where that line is? This is, I think, a valid line of questioning, even though I know that slippery slope is kind of a, thrown out there a lot. There's a slippery slope, there's a slippery slope. I feel like in our culture that we've seen that in action. I remember seeing uh, interviews and hearing about interviews with, um, with gay rights activists arguing for marriage. And then someone interviewing them being like, well, if we just say yes to whatever though, like what about polyamory and people, uh, polygamy and multiple wives? And their response was, ew, that's gross. That will never happen. That was 20 years ago or so now, right? Has that happened, right? Ew changes over time, right? So, so is there a line or is it just whatever seems right to us at the time? Uh, a second question I ask him is, how do you differentiate between sexual repression and sexual self-control? You see, I am a cis straight male, okay? But I can still experience feelings of sexual attraction towards women who are not my wife. And shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't I exercise self-control and not acting on those desires? Yes. But there's this tendency in this movement to say, oh, that's repression. Don't be sexually repressed. That's like the worst possible thing. Is it, well, isn't self-control a good thing though? So, so where's the line? What, what, what are you calling repression and what are you calling self-control? And then lastly, can people be born with inclinations and desires that they should not embrace, that they should actually fight against? Again, Part of this overall movement and idea is that you should just go with whatever you desire. That's where flourishing is found. And I just think that that doesn't work. Especially if you have the Christian view that all of us are fallen, that we don't want all the right things. Sure, some of our desires are good and fine, and God says yes to those, but then other ones have become twisted because of the fall. And we want what we should not embrace or follow on. I mean, just, just one example of among many, um, through no fault of their own, some people are born with a tendency towards alcoholism. And we know there are actually genetic markers for this. So should we say, it? no, you're born that way, therefore just live that way. Become an alcoholic because that's what your genes tell you. No, right? So can people be born with inclinations and desires that they actually should fight against? These are some questions, it's a sensitive topic, but at the end of the day, remember, the most important thing is where people are with Jesus. Here's a, one more verse for you today to remind us of this. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I wrote to you, and he's talking about a former letter. He said, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the gradient swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. Um, when Paul says of the world, he's talking about non-Christians. He's saying, okay, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. I meant sexually immoral Christians who profess to be following Jesus with their life and under his lordship who are being sexually immoral. I didn't mean don't associate with non-Christians who are sexually immoral because then you'd have to leave the world. (laughs) That's kind of silly, but what Paul's getting at is a profound point. It's not Christian's job to try to make non-Christians live a Christian way. That's unrealistic. Or to dissociate with any non Christian who doesn't follow our morals. But actually, Paul says I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. That's what Paul's saying, Christians, it starts with you guys. You're this Christian community and your job is to hold each other accountable to following God's will and his ways. And that relates to sexual immorality and that relates to being greedy, to putting something other than God first, to people being verbally abusive. You guys, Paul is saying, you guys need to call each other out on this stuff. And every time I look at these verses, I think, man, us as the church, historically, we have tended to get this exactly backwards over the years, it feels like. Where we have this t- tendency historically to be very soft on sin inside the church and very loud and vocal at the sin we see outside there. Paul says, that's not the way it should be. If you're a follower of Jesus, your job is to f- hold accountable other followers of Jesus. Jesus. And you should not expect those people out there to follow the ways of Jesus. They haven't chosen to follow Jesus yet. What business is is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. And so I see this as uh, our application and our calling as Christians to grow and becoming a kind of community that makes a bigger deal about the sin inside our church and calling that out and calling each other to the standard that Jesus has. And as I thought about all of this stuff, again, what we want to do is to hold the mirror up to ourselves and be honest about if some of this has impacted our own ways of thinking. And if you're a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction, I might have already articulated some ways that this way of thinking has impacted your life. Or if you're a Christian who experiences gender dysphoria, I might have already articulated some of that. Um, if you're a Christian who is straight and cis, I'm learning these words too, as you could tell. Um, that doesn't mean you don't experience sexual temptation or sin. In fact, I have heard some things expressed within the Christian community that I'm like, wait, what? where are you getting that from? I've heard well-meaning Christian parents say when their kids were interested in marrying someone, you guys should live together first. You need to make sure you're sexually compatible. Where do you get that from? (laughs) Where they got it from is our culture. It's just common sense. That sexual satisfaction is so important. And so if you're gonna marry someone, spend your life with them, you need to make sure you're sexually compatible. That's the common sense of our culture. Infecting the way we view the world and how we view right and wrong. If you're married and you're not experiencing sexual satisfaction, Something's wrong. Maybe you're married to the wrong person. See what's happening? Sexual satisfaction is elevated above the covenant of marriage. That you deserve to be sexually satisfied and your flourishing is related to that. That kind of thinking can infect any of us. And as someone who has... Um, struggle with addiction to pornography. I know how easily an addiction or sexual desires can transform and push you towards those deceptive thinking, right? No one will know. It won't hurt anyone. All of those are symptoms of what Paul says, right? Where the unrighteous way of living, the wrong way of living will lead to Confused thinking. So this is not simply for people who experience same-sex attraction or experience gender dysphoria. This is for all of us. And would we grow in becoming people say the most important thing is Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. And as we do that, We say, okay, God, I am surrendered to you, right? The basic commitment of being Christian is this. Yes, Jesus, what do you want me to do, right? Whatever it is, yes. Whatever it is, yes. Whatever it is personally, yes. Whatever it is with family, yes. Whatever it is with how I interact with my husband or wife, yes. Whatever it is sexually, yes. I'll do things your will, your way, because I believe you know best. And as we close today, let's just remember that the invitation of the church has never been change and then we'll accept you or then we'll, you can join us. It's always been join us and you will change. But the changed life proceeds from a transformed heart, not the other way around. Jesus does not tell anyone, clean up your life and then I'll accept you. Right? It's us versus God, that we were all enemies with Christ. And Christ came for us when we were his enemies and reconciled all of us to himself, providing the gift of salvation for us, which starts with a transformed heart. And so as we close today, I wanna encourage you to make this song your own, uh, to cry out, Lord, I need you. I need you. Because apart from you, I would go astray. I would not go the way you want me to live. And also, if I'm being honest, uh, this prayer is an echo of my heart when I know someone personally who experienced gender dysphoria. And in that moment, it's like, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Lord, I need you to speak with wisdom and truth and love because sometimes it's really hard to know how to be there and what to say. And so God, would you help us rely on on your strength and look to you as we consider the healing that each of us need in our own hearts and the way our culture and our world has just gotten this. so confused in so many ways but then it's so ingrained in everything from the TV shows we watch the movies we watch, the songs we sing and it's just presented as common sense over and over and over again and it can be so easy to adopt that way of thinking God we need you To help us see the world the way you see it. To see sex the way you see it. To see gender the way you see it. To see ourselves the way you see us. As beloved children who have gone very far astray. And so help each of us here today. Accept your gift of grace and forgiveness and healing. And then be people who extend that gift of grace and healing to others and invite them to follow you and to find you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.